I'm Sebastian, a supporter of Socialist Fightback in Montreal. In this episode, I'll be narrating part two of an article on the origin of class society, which was published in issue number 35 of the In Defense of Marxism quarterly magazine. In this section, we'll be discussing how the growth and surplus food production led to the rise of urban areas, the need for writing and money, and the birth of the first states. If you'd like to understand how humanity got to this point, I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one, where we discuss the Paleolithic and the Neolithic revolution, and how these advances in humans' interaction with the natural world pave the way for the explosion of class society. So grab a snack, or start your chores, or whatever it is you're doing, and let's continue our anthropological journey through the rise of the first class societies. Part 1. The Growth of the Surplus as the Neolithic commune continued to develop and grew both in size and productive capacity, there were more resources to be organized and more complex decisions to be made. Indeed, the whole history of the Neolithic could be summed up in the question, what to do with the surplus? One way in which Neolithic communities organized their surplus product was to store it for the future. The villages of the Neolithic, such as Jerf el Amar in Syria, generally had storage facilities managed and controlled by the whole community. The surplus also took the form of a greater quantity of labor time that could be devoted to tasks other than subsistence. The inhabitants of Jericho, for example, channeled their surplus time and energy into carrying out massive communal projects such as the Great Tower and Wall, which have been dated to as early as 8000 BC. The growth of the surplus also increased trade between the largely self-sufficient Neolithic communes, which began to lay the basis for a regional division of labor and the interdependence of settlements at a later stage. The most significant response to the growth of surplus production was the emergence of a new social division between mental and physical labor, the hand and the head. The rising productivity of labor allowed for the liberation of a small section of society from the demands of physical labor in the fields. This development, the final product of the Neolithic, would provide the basis for the first class societies in history. Its history is therefore of special importance. From around 7000 BC, Neolithic peoples in the Near East began to move into other, less hospitable, but more fertile areas such as Mesopotamia, or modern Iraq, where the first states would eventually develop. This raises the question of the role of the environment in historical development. Evidently, in the metabolism between man and nature, our natural environment is extremely important. In prehistoric society, much of humanity's technological and social development appears as a response to external environmental pressures. However, this is only part of the story in which ultimately the activity of human beings plays the starring role. It is often said that civilization or class society was the product of the fertile soils surrounding the Tigris, Euphrates, Nile, Yellow River, or Indus. But the productivity of the Mesopotamian soil would remain nothing more than an empty possibility 
so long as human beings lacked the means to cultivate it. In 7000 to 6000 BC, much of Lower Mesopotamia was rendered inhospitable by the waterlogged marshes that covered it. Further, the lack of important materials such as wood, and later copper, made places like Lower Mesopotamia very difficult to settle without access to long-distance trade networks. These means were provided by the development of the productive forces during the Neolithic. The use of irrigation was already present at both Jericho and Katalhoyuk as a means of supplementing production. Around 7000 BC, these settlements went into decline, but the developments that had taken place there were not lost, as this technology eventually spread into the Mesopotamian plain. The earliest evidence of irrigated agriculture in Mesopotamia has been found at Shogamami, dated to around 6000 BC. But the settlement and the Samaran culture of which it was a part still had all the hallmarks of the early Neolithic. When settlers, thought to be from the Iranian plateau, began to apply this new technology to the super-fertile marshlands of Lower Mesopotamia, however, it would lay the basis for a radical change in the social division of labor, which would culminate in the birth of class society. Part 2. The Urban Revolution The urban revolution in the Near East did not start with large Neolithic settlements like Jericho, but with small villages, which while unassuming at the time, possessed a great potential for development. The lowest levels of the site of Eridu in southern Iraq have been dated to around 5800 BC. What makes the settlement significant is not only the fact that it was one of the first settlements to use irrigation canals to drain excess marsh water, but that it contains the earliest evidence of buildings exclusively dedicated to cultic activities. These chapels, as they are sometimes called, were the physical manifestations of an epoch-making change in social relations, the rise of the priests. Irrigation must have had a huge effect on the lives and consciousness of the first inhabitants of Eridu, but it also required a profound change in their organization of labor. The digging of canals required not only the labor of many workers, but also a degree of planning and direction. This work could not be effectively carried out by independent households working alone. It required the cooperation of a relatively large number of workers under the direction of some kind of leadership. As Marx comments in Capital, all directly social or communal labor on a large scale requires, to a greater or lesser degree, a directing authority in order to secure the harmonious cooperation of the activities of individuals. That this role would be played by the priests is not surprising. Even in hunter-gatherer societies, shamans or other spiritual leaders often held a relatively privileged position in the social division of labor, so they could devote themselves to the understanding and mastery of the community's natural environment. Those individuals who had the greatest insight into the secrets of nature and the divine were naturally considered the best candidates to secure the blessings of the deity. But even the deity was himself a product of history. The belief that there exist all-powerful gods who intervene in the affairs of human beings and are therefore to be worshipped is very rare among hunter-gatherer societies and is thought to have been absent prior to the Neolithic. Ultimately, the notion of a god as the highest directing authority imaginable 
was itself the ideological reflection of the increasing control of a section of society not only over natural forces, but over human beings as well. Nor was this development the product of uniquely Mesopotamian conditions. The crucial task of predicting the Nile floods became the domain of the Egyptian priests, and the eventual source of their power. The Mayan priests in the Yucatan Peninsula were likewise required to oversee the sacrifices and ceremonies that ensured the favor of the sacred cenotes, natural sinkholes that would fill with groundwater, the only source of fresh water in a region without rivers. We can also see a similar process unfold with the rise of the Brahmin caste in Vedic India, a group which would remain the social elite for thousands of years. The creation of a section of society sustained on the surplus product of the rest of the community and directing its labors marks a turning point in the history of humanity. With it, the Neolithic in Mesopotamia comes to an end and we see the beginning of what Gordon Child would call the Urban Revolution. However, it must be stressed that Eridu, in 5800 BC, was certainly not a class society. Both production and distribution remained essentially communistic. The only compulsion the priests could rely on was the acceptance of the community, or at least the majority of its members. In all the above examples, the role played by the priestly caste was initially one which benefited the whole community, as the servant, albeit a privileged one, of the commune. But at a certain stage, this servant would turn usurper. The new organization of labor found at Eridu provided further stimulation for the development of the productive forces. The large tracts of arable land which had been created by irrigation allowed for the effective use of the ox-drawn plow, which made an enormous difference to the productivity of labor at the time. The enhanced water supply on these lands also gave rise to the first experiments in arboriculture with the cultivation of the date palm. On the basis of these developments flourished the Ubaid culture, named after the site of Tel al-Ubaid in Iraq, which lasted from 5100 to 4000 BC. This period saw the proliferation of agricultural settlements along irrigation canals, all possessing a common style of pottery, which was a very high quality. Many of these settlements had a central temple structure along the same lines as Eridu, but temples of the Ubaid period were much more substantial. It is evident from the archaeology that the greatly enhanced production of surplus, largely in the form of grain, was contributing not only to the greater wealth and size of the community as a whole, but also to the social weight of its central directing organ. Individual priests may not have acquired much wealth for themselves by this point, but the institution of the temple certainly commanded a greater and greater proportion of social labor and its surplus product. This would not necessarily have appeared as a fundamental break with the egalitarian norms of the past. After all, if the beneficence of the guardian deity had provided the new lands and abundant harvests in the first place, then who better to receive the surplus product in thanks? The priests did not put the god's wealth to waste either. In the Ubaid period, we find evidence of increasingly specialized craftsmen, and by the end of this period, there would emerge a layer of full-time specialists whose workshops formed part of the temple complex. From this, we can infer a relation of dependence, 
wherein the craftsmen were effectively employed by the temple in return for products such as pottery, copper artifacts, and semi-precious stones. Here again, we see the development of new productive relations developing within the womb of the old. Ubaid culture would spread across much of Mesopotamia and even further. However, in no way did this constitute anything like a unified empire or even a state. There is no evidence that the various Ubaid-inspired settlements that we find across the region were either conquered or colonized by the original Ubaid settlements. What is much more likely is that alongside an increasingly sophisticated network of trade in pottery, copper, obsidian, semi-precious stones, and other specialty trade goods, there grew up a closer cultural interaction in which the wealth of settlements such as Eridu inspired other communities to take up similar production techniques without ever being ruled by them or anyone else. Ubaid society already appears radically different to the villages of the early Neolithic, and yet in a number of fundamental respects, Ubaid society remained closer in character to primitive communism than class society. In spite of the increasingly unequal distribution of wealth within the community and the rising power of the priests as the stewards of the surplus, the community itself remained independent of all others, democratic and free from forced labor. What we see in the late Ubaid period could therefore be characterized as a kind of transitional society, containing at the same time powerful elements of both class society and primitive communist society. And out of relations developed within Ubaid society, there would arise the first ever class society, based on the rule of the city over the village, and of man by man, Uruk. Part 3. The First Class Society Uruk is one of the world's first states, only competing with ancient Egypt for the definitive title of oldest. The city of Uruk began life as a couple of Ubaid villages around 5000 BC. Like other settlements of the period, they were centered around relatively large temple complexes, one devoted to Anu, or Heaven, God of the Sky, and one to Inyana, Lady of Heaven, Goddess of Love. Over time, the growth of these villages would cause them to fuse into a single enormous city, which by roughly 3100 BC, was home to a staggering 40,000 people. As Uruk grew, along with its population of specialized independent craftsmen, the ancient self-sufficiency and therefore independence of the commune began to break down. The concentration of craft production in the urban centers and of food production in the villages meant that the larger settlements could no longer depend on their own population for the production of food, and so began taking part of the surplus product from the surrounding villages. Upon this dramatic shift in the social division of labor arose the earliest separation of the town and country. Marx considered this separation so important to the development of class society, he claimed that the whole economic history of society is summed up in the movement of this antithesis. The surplus from the villages would likely have taken the form of an offering for the gods who resided at their respective temples, but there was also something of a contractual element involved. The farmers received craft products and trade commodities that would otherwise have been inaccessible. 
Eventually, this relation was transformed from one of complementary interdependence to outright exploitation in the form of a tithe owed to the temples at Uruk by the surrounding villages, paid in kind, irrespective of whether the farmers received anything in return and extracted by force if necessary. In addition to the surplus product, the temple bureaucracy also laid claim to the surplus labor time of the mass of the population. In Uruk, we see the transformation of quantity into quality, with the direct control and exploitation of labor on a mass scale, no longer through the old communal structures of the village and the family, but by a distinct class, standing above and usurping the commune. This turning point is manifested physically in the pottery left behind from the period. In contrast to the expertly made bowls and vases of the Ubaid culture, the most commonly found ceramic artifacts at Uruk were rough, beveled rim bowls. But this was not the step back that it might seem to be. Uruk was flourishing, and its potters were busy creating the first mass-produced item in history. Using standardized molds, specialized craftsmen could produce thousands of these bowls in a short period of time. But who was using these bowls? The most widely accepted explanation is that they were used to distribute rations to gangs of forced corvée laborers, most likely peasants from the surrounding villages who were conscripted to work on projects such as digging irrigation canals or erecting city walls and to do seasonal work on temple lands. The huge number of such bowls discovered at Uruk and other sites of the period attests to the size of the workforce and the scale of the projects involved. The laborers could well have been drafted from different villages and family groups to work for people they did not know on projects that would confer little to no direct benefit on themselves or their families. New class relations outside of the old communal structures were beginning to take form. The changes taking place in the relations of production at the base of society began to produce changes in property relations. Prior to the Uruk period, all land belonged collectively to the family and could not pass out of it. This meant that it always remained in the possession and under the collective control of the village commune, which was itself made up of several large family groups similar to the gents of the Homeric Greeks. Evidence of this gentile or clan ownership of land can even be seen much later, in the early dynastic period. In contracts for the purchase of fields, the purchaser had to distribute gifts to the entire extended family of the individual seller before he could secure their permission for the land to be released from their collective control. But the new relations that had emerged out of the city posed a significant threat to this state of affairs. As Uruk grew, the pre-existing village lands continued to be managed under the old family system. However, the extension of irrigation projects carried out by corvée labor under the direction of the temple had created virgin arable land to which no family or village could lay claim. This meant that it naturally fell outside of the old communal system. Instead, these new lands were assigned to the temple. Over time, parts of these temple lands were assigned to individuals in return for services rendered to the city. Naturally, these individuals came from the ruling elite. 
These assignments did not confer absolute ownership and were considered as a temporary and revocable stipend, but they still had the effect of creating a form of individual possession and control of land, independent of the villages. The dissolution of the old communal order can be seen within the city of Uruk itself. The citizens of Uruk did not all benefit equally from the surplus extracted from the villages. The temple held exclusive control over the surplus product, appropriating a greater and greater share for itself. What was not consumed by the temple bureaucracy was stored, distributed, and traded under its control. On the other hand, the disintegration of the family system had created an underclass of people without the means to support themselves. The growing weight of surplus extraction bearing down on the villages began to push those peasants who were unable to pay into debt. Those who failed to pay their debts could be enslaved by the creditors along with their wives and children. In the late Uruk period, we begin to see existence of the employment of widows and orphans as a form of servile labor, producing textiles in workshops attached to the temple. The product of these workshops would then be traded, sometimes across long distances, in return for sought-after goods such as copper and obsidian. This new product of civilization also gives us a powerful indication of the extent to which the status of women had fallen in Uruk by this time. In the city, wages or lands were conferred to individual craftsmen, priests, etc., who were always male. In the countryside, cereal cultivation using the ox-drawn plough was likewise an exclusively male occupation. As this branch of the social division of labor became all-important, so too did the position of men in society. The place of the woman as an equal producer within the family was degraded and reduced to servitude, the slave of man's lust and a mere instrument for the production of children, as Engels put it. This was recognized by the Sumerians themselves. Spread out your robe so he can lie upon you and perform for this primitive the task of womankind, the trapper demands of Shamash the harlot in the Epic of Gilgamesh. The rise of inheritance through the male line left women entirely dependent on their husbands or male relatives. If their husband died, the only salvation offered by the temple was employment in the workshop, performing the women's work of the home in squalid conditions, only to expand the wealth of the ruling class. Not for nothing did Engels remark that the first class oppression coincides with that of the female sex by the male. Looking back on the rise of class society in Uruk, it is difficult to believe that such a gigantic act of usurpation could have been tolerated. But it could not have been achieved by force alone. As Trotsky writes, The historical justification for every ruling class consisted in this, that the system of exploitation it headed raised the development of the productive forces to a new level. On the basis of this development, the living standards and cultural level of a significant section of the population was raised, especially in the cities. This development can be seen in the birth of writing and money, two of the most important innovations in the history of humanity. Part 4. Writing and Money There is a close interconnection between the development of money, writing, and class society. Writing develops more or less simultaneously in both Mesopotamia and Egypt, 
but for simplicity's sake, we will focus on Mesopotamia. Symbols on clay, known as accounting tokens, began to appear in the Near East as early as 4000 BC. Someone attempting to account for three sheep might make three sheep tokens and string them together on a piece of cord. Over time, as flocks became larger, symbols representing different numbers of livestock were invented. The tokens were often then encased in a clay outer casing known as a bulla and baked. Pictographic tablets from sites like Tel Brak in Syria, which show images of animals next to numbers, reflect the furthest that this use of symbols could develop before a full-fledged writing system emerged. In Uruk, a writing system developed which allowed temple bureaucrats to communicate complex concepts with each other, based on the pictograms of the previous period. Initially, it was used to organize the economic resources of Uruk. From around 3200 BC, cuneiform writing, referring to the wedged shape of its signs, began to appear in the archaeological record. Of the cuneiform tablets associated with Uruk, around 85% are economic and administrative in nature. An exceptionally complex writing system, such as cuneiform, presupposes the existence of a layer in society who had the time to learn to read and write, the scribes. The scribes' possession of this knowledge secured them an important place in the ruling classes of both Mesopotamia and Egypt. As it says in the ancient Egyptian Satire of the Trades, See, there is no office free from supervisors except the scribes. He is the supervisor. Though it began with economic necessity, writing was then put to use for a whole variety of purposes. Cuneiform came to be used across Mesopotamia for thousands of years. Eventually, the earliest literature and poetry, such as the famous Epic of Gilgamesh, the Hurrian Hymn to Nikal, the world's oldest known song, and Hammurabi's Code of Laws would all be inscribed in cuneiform. In this sense, every poet bears with him the shattered remains of the accountant. Just as the growth of the surplus and the temple bureaucracy had created a social need for the communication of information through writing, the increased specialization and interdependence within society necessitated constant exchange of a wider and wider variety of products. In Uruk, these exchanges were largely managed by the temple. For example, a potter producing beveled rim bowls could expect to receive sufficient rations of barley from the temple which would have been taken as a tithe from the villages. The sheer scale and complexity of the distribution carried out by the temple went far beyond the limits of the personal exchanges that had been common during the Neolithic period. A more objective system of measurement was therefore required. Weights of silver were measured in grains, shekels, minas, and talents. This system was then used to create units of account, which allowed the temple bureaucrats to compare the value of the various commodities that were passing through their stores, giving rise to money in its earliest and most basic form, a universal measure of value. Initially, both volumes of barley and weights of precious metals played this role. 300 liters of barley was equivalent to one silver shekel. These early forms of money would almost certainly not have circulated amongst the population as coin or currency. 
In fact, these quantities of barley and silver were tangible representatives of the abstract measurement of value being carried out within the temple. But like writing, money would not be confined to the desk of the temple bureaucrat forever. It was destined to play an even greater role in the history of civilization. Currency, credit, and all of the gleaming towers of high finance today can draw their genealogy from these humble weights of silver and rations of barley. The measurement of time was also standardized, using a sexagesimal counting system that produced an impressively accurate year of 12 months and 360 days. This system is also to thank for our hours containing 60 minutes. Likewise, a standardized measurement of distance was introduced to assist in the planning of agricultural land and irrigation canals. All of these innovations, which Aristotle wisely noted were directly linked to the liberation of the priests and scribes from manual labor, provided a colossal impetus to the power of scientific thought and brought into existence the first astronomers and mathematicians. Part 5. The Birth of the State By 3100 BC, we have ample evidence of a class of priests and scribes centered around the temple, who held exclusive control over the production and distribution of the wealth of society, and were beginning to secure for themselves a heritable reserve of private wealth. We can also see that this class was becoming fully self-aware, in the sense that it saw itself as separate and superior to the rest of society, and propagated an ideology of rule that reflected their interests. One other feature of the emergence of the new ruling class in Uruk is the rise of the first priest kings, who appear in statues and clay seal designs of this period. No historically verifiable identity or recorded acts can be reliably associated with these anonymous rulers. Even the name, Priest King, is something of a misnomer, as the earliest title we can find for the ruler of Uruk is En, meaning simply High Priest. Whether these kings could be truly considered as heads of state in the fullest sense of the word is open to debate. However, we can be certain that the appearance of these priest kings marks a further qualitative shift in the disintegration of the old communal social system and the beginning of a new form of political organization. With the dramatic increase in the surplus product and its concentration in the temples, it became increasingly necessary for cities such as Uruk to erect walls and organize some form of military force in order to repel raids from nomadic tribes of herdsmen or even rival cities. However, this military organization required a commander. Clay seals from the time suggest that this role was fulfilled by the priest kings of Uruk and later Sumerian monarchs. Beneath the king there also existed the Unkin, a communal assembly. This was not simply the continuation of the old communal organization, however. The old village assemblies had been decision-making bodies that resolved issues within the families that made up the village. By contrast, the emerging state, or proto-state, claimed absolute authority over not only the city where the priest-king resided, but a surrounding territory as well. The assembly could advise, like the elders of the Epic of Gilgamesh, who warned the impetuous king before his struggle with the giant Tumbaba. But ultimately, the priest-king was answerable only to the god who protected the city, 
and in reality to the ruling class in whose interests he ruled. Not long after the rise of the priest kings, Uruk would experience a period of crisis and collapse, marking the end of the so-called First Urbanization. After 3100 BC, we find not only a significant retrogression of Uruk culture in the archaeological record, but the permanent decline and even complete disappearance of other cities in the region, which had been growing up along with Uruk throughout the 4th millennium BC. For example, at the site of Arslantepe in northern Mesopotamia, we find evidence that the city's large temple complex was destroyed by fire and never rebuilt. Evidence is too scarce to put forward a single definitive explanation of such a widespread collapse. One potential factor is the impact of drought or the impact of over-farming, but other, more social factors would also likely have played an important and even decisive role. As can be seen throughout the history of class society, including our own era, the ruling class will tend to shift the burden of any crisis onto the shoulders of the direct producers. When production was expanding, it is possible that the new class contradictions in society could have been somewhat obscured, but with a drop in agricultural production, the conflict between the peasant villages and the ruling class in the cities would likely have been thrown into stark relief. Mario Liverani, in his book The Ancient Near East, argues that the destruction of the temple of Arslantepe by fire suggests a violent struggle. What can be known with certainty is that it was replaced only by a few simple households, with no return to a centralized temple structure. It is not outside the bounds of possibility that a similar struggle erupted in the territory of Uruk, with villages resisting the demands of the temple for surplus, or even attempting to break away altogether. Following the crisis at the end of the 4th millennium, a totally new structure enters the archaeological record the palace. Uruk and similar settlements were centered around temple complexes which appropriated and controlled the entire surplus. Later settlements, such as Jemdet Nasr, possessed both a temple and a palace complex, with storerooms and workshops similar to the temples of the Uruk period. The palace, Egal, meaning big house, thus served as a productive as well as an administrative center and was the residence of the Lugal, literally meaning big man. From this point forwards, the existence of the state in the fullest sense of the word is indisputable. Part 6. The Role of Force The crisis experienced at Uruk and the complete collapse at other sites such as Arslantepe suggests that the direct rule of the priests, despite their considerable ideological power, lacked the brute force required to hold down the subject population if the need arose. The first armies were little more than the armed people drafted for military service. If the people themselves were in revolt, the priests would have had little to fall back on. What was required for the continuation of class relations was a permanent force of full-time workers specialized in military activities, set apart from the population at large, not only to protect the city from outsiders, but to defend the ruling class from the oppressed masses. This special body of armed men would become the state, 
with a big man at its head. As Engels explains, the state is therefore by no means a power imposed on society from without. Just as little is it the reality of the moral idea. Rather, it is a product of society at a particular stage of development. It is the admission that this society has involved itself in insoluble self-contradiction and is cleft into irreconcilable antagonisms which it is powerless to exercise. But in order that these antagonisms, classes with conflicting economic interests, shall not consume themselves and society in fruitless struggle, a power apparently standing above society has become necessary to moderate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of order. This power, arisen out of society, but placing itself above it and increasingly alienating itself from it, is the state. Contrary to the explanation put forward by Engels, anarchist theorists have often argued that the state is the root of all evils, including class society, inequality, and money, which somehow arose on the basis of the organized violence of kings and states. David Graeber, for example, argues that the real origins of money are to be found in crime and recompense, war and slavery, honor, debt, and redemption. But this is plainly contradicted by the archaeological record, which weighs heavily in Engel's defense. What anarchists get right about the state is its absolute interdependence with class society. The experience of Uruk shows that no class society can survive for very long without a state to protect it and regulate it. However, to interpret class exploitation as being the product of the state is to put the cart before the horse. Unless we define the state as any form of violence or control, thus rendering the state eternal and meaningless, then it is evident from a study of ancient states that class society was already in the process of formation by the time the first real kings and states arose. That the rise of class society has everywhere required the forcible creation of the state only reflects the fact that the final dissolution of the old communal relations, which had been prepared over thousands of years, could not be achieved in a peaceful and gradual manner. There remained a large part of society whose interests conflicted directly with the new relations of exploitation that were beginning to emerge. At the same time, there were evidently influential sections of society who stood to gain a great deal from the new order. This produced a conflict which at a decisive point would likely have cleaved the whole of society into opposing camps, and which could only ultimately be decided by force. Force is the midwife of every old society pregnant with a new one. It is itself an economic power. Part 7. Combined and Uneven Development The process of state formation in Mesopotamia provides a fascinating example of how class society developed out of communal Neolithic society. This led Gordon Child to set out a list of the important features he discovered in these early class societies, including full-time specialist craftsmen, transport workers, merchants, officials, and priests the extraction of a surplus, writing, and a state organization based now on residence rather than kinship. 
The many critics of Child have twisted his valuable description of one of the most important processes in human history into some sort of recipe for state formation, in which the state is merely any society that contains cities plus all the above features. As a result, they claim that a Marxist analysis of the state is too prescriptive and really only applies to Mesopotamia. However, this argument holds little water. Marxists understand that state societies are not simply a list of features. There are civilizations, such as the Inca, which never developed writing, and others, like ancient Egypt, in which cities played a smaller economic role. Rather than classifying societies in an empirical, taxonomic way based on their surface features, it is necessary to look into their origin, development, and relation to other societies of the time. In Capital, Marx writes at length about the development of capitalism in England, where it took its classical form, with only passing references to other countries. At the same time, he did not argue that the exact form in which the process took place in England was the only way in which it could take place. What made England the classical country of capitalist development also made it unique. The fact it was the first to develop a capitalist economy out of the development of feudalism meant that the process was stretched out over hundreds of years and many intermediate transitional forms. This allowed a close study of the underlying general processes taking place, not just in England, but in a number of other countries. But this does not mean that every country had to go through a period of wool production for the market, followed by manufacture, and then finally, the factory system, in order to develop capitalism. The same can be said of the so-called pristine states, as found in Sumer, Egypt, and China, for example. Far from being pristine, these early class societies were extremely messy and contradictory, bearing the stamp of earlier communistic relations. The ones that sprang up afterwards and under the influence of these civilizations did so much more rapidly and without much of the prehistoric baggage that could be found at Uruk, for example. Sumerian city-states, which developed later, such as Ur, could leap head and shoulders above their antecedents. This phenomenon is widely documented throughout history, including in the history of the development of capitalism. The privilege of being the first to develop is quickly succeeded by the privilege of backwardness, whereby more economically backward societies can develop faster and more rationally by leaning on the achievements of their more advanced competitors. A similar process is described in Engels' The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. He explains that the origins of the Athenian state can be traced back to the massive social tumult caused by the corrosive influence of private property, slavery, and money, all of which had already been developed elsewhere. In these conditions, the rise of Athenian class society not only occurred in a much shorter period than Aruruk, but even took a completely different form, without a centralized temple bureaucracy or taxation as the primary means of acquiring the surplus product. It was a society based on a qualitatively different mode of production, characterized by a higher level of private property, and with its slavery. Precisely because it came later, on the basis of Iron Age as opposed to Bronze Age technology, and in a different environment 
as compared with Sumer and Egypt. Marxists are often criticized for applying a rigid template to the development of class societies. However, if we use the Marxist method properly to analyze the rise of the state, we can see that the opposite is true. We could even go so far as to say that it is an iron law of historical materialism that the constant interaction between societies at different stages necessarily produces leaps and variety in social development, a phenomenon referred to by Leon Trotsky as combined and uneven development. Whatever the differences between Mesopotamia and Egypt, the Murayans and the Maya, or Greece and Rome, the process that underlies the development of these states is the same. In all cases, the necessary development of the productive forces leads to the production of a surplus, which in turn allows a group of people to live on the product of others' labor. In the course of development, this group develops into a class with its own interests opposed to the rest of society, either due to external pressure or the internal contradictions of this new class society, usually both, a state ultimately representing the interests of this class raises itself above the rest of society as a guardian of order. That is the stability and continuation of the existing relations of production. This process can happen over thousands of years or in a very short period of time and can take many forms. But the most important lesson is that the development of the state is fundamentally caused by the development of social classes and the contradictions which flow from this. Part 8. The Role of the Individual Accepting a materialist analysis of history does not mean that a state and classes were bound to develop automatically in every community in which the basic economic conditions had begun to take form. Such a process can be interrupted, scattered, slowed down, or reversed in the course of real historical events, particularly the course of the emerging class struggle within said society. As Marx explains in The Holy Family, History does nothing. It possesses no immense wealth. It wages no battles. It is man, real living man, who does all that, who possesses and fights. History is not, as it were, a person apart, using man as a means to achieve its own aims. History is nothing but the activity of man pursuing his aims. Individuals could play a very decisive role in the formation of early states just as they can in the modern class struggle. In archaeology, a popular concept to explain the rise of the early state is the aggrandizer principle. This argues that, in the transition from a chiefdom to a state, individual aggrandizers, or great men, motivated by increasing their own power, play an instrumental role in the formation of early states. This usually amounts to a great man view of history, which presents the actions and personalities of great individuals as an independent and driving factor in the history of society. But with a materialist approach to state formation, it is possible to put these great men in their real place. This is most clear in Egyptian state formation, due to the emphasis on elaborate funerary rituals and royal burials, allowing us to pick out the graves of individual kings with ease. We can see in depictions of Narmer, 
the king who unified Upper and Lower Egypt, that the process of state formation was far from automatic. The Narmer palette, which provides one of the earliest known depictions of any king in history, shows Narmer wearing the crown of Upper Egypt, forcing a Lower Egyptian to surrender to him, mace in hand. The early dynastic kings did not simply inherit a ready-made state, they had to form one through force. If Narmer had been an incompetent and cowardly leader, then the formation of the ancient Egyptian state would likely not have taken the same form. In this sense, the character and actions of individuals are decisive. Whether events happen as they do depend on the people who carry them out. However, ambitious, charismatic individuals have existed at every point in history. The question that anyone wishing to understand the rise of the states must answer is why, at that particular point, these individuals were able to achieve their goals in such a historically decisive way. Individuals like Narmer of the Egyptians, King Jaguar of the Zapotecs, or the Lugals of Sumer may have been acting in their own interests, but they also reflected the underlying necessity that existed in a class society riven by its own contradictions. In the words of Plekhanov, A great man is great, not because his personal qualities give individual features to great historical events, but because he possesses qualities which make him most capable of serving the great social needs of his time, needs which arose as a result of general and particular causes. Like the temple builders of Gobekli Tepe and the Neolithic settlers who drained the marshes of Sumer, the first great men were individuals who by their actions and abilities made history, but they did not make it out of nothing. If their vision and ambition appears to have changed society by the sheer force of will alone, it is because this vision disclosed a picture of the future being prepared by much more than the will of any individual. At the dawn of class society, the overthrow of the commune and the formation of states was one of the great social needs of the time. A solution to the crisis that had opened up in societies had to be found, and it was found in the birth of the state in which the actions of leaders like Narmer played an important role. The mistake made by historians and archaeologists is to imply that individual agency and historical necessity are mutually exclusive, when in reality the two are united within every when in reality the two are united within every historical event. It is precisely through the conflict of innumerable individual wills that historical necessity exerts itself. Part 9. In Defense of Progress Considering the hardships faced by Neolithic farmers and the exploitation endured by so many of their descendants under class society, some have questioned whether we can even describe this development as progress at all. Certainly, the liberal myth of an enlightened social contract under which all of mankind has lived a more peaceful and prosperous existence is manifestly false. The life of the Sumerian peasant was likely as nasty, brutish, and short as many of his Neolithic ancestors. Nor can progress be seen as any sort of moral ascendancy if the enslavement of women under class society is anything to go by. The only conception of progress that can take into account the obvious development that has taken place over the ages 
without twisting oneself into the hopeless tangle of self-contradictions, is that of the development of the productive forces, of humanity's mastery over the forces of nature and over our own social development. Certainly, if progress meant an improvement in all areas of life for everyone, we would be hard-pressed to find much genuine progress in human history from the end of the last ice age onwards. Nevertheless, the progress of humanity as a whole in this period is unmistakable. Between 5000 and 2000 BC, the world's population increased five times over, from an estimated 5 million to 25 million. Livarani estimates that the rise of the first city-states coincided with a tenfold rise in production as compared with Neolithic levels. This rise in productivity, comprising discoveries in science, mathematics, and art that we still use today, was achieved under relations that were much more unequal and oppressive, and only served to strengthen those relations. The same could be said of the rise of capitalism. What made both the rise of class society and the rise of capitalism progressive was not their abstract moral superiority, but their concrete necessity as stages in the development of the productive forces, the only form in which further development could take place. However, the fact that class exploitation and oppression in various forms have at one time been a necessary part of social development does not mean that they must always be so. Primitive communism was necessary and inevitable, and yet it was just as inevitably overthrown. By what right can class society claim to be the final and absolute expression of human nature to which all of history has been tending? In history, as in nature, all that exists deserves to perish. That which serves as a way forward for development is eventually destined to be overthrown by that same development. Every conquest won in our struggle for existence necessarily brings forth its own obstacles and threats, against which the struggle for further progress must take place. This is especially the case under class society, in which Every step forward is also relatively a step backward, in which prosperity and development for some is won through the misery and frustration of others. The real content of progress, the development of the social productive forces of humanity, is thus realized in a succession of limited and contradictory forms. If we find those forms objectionable today, all that tells us is that they have become obsolete, but it in no way disproves the fact of the progress in general. Today, we live in a world in which the productive forces that have already been developed are straining against the fetters of private property, the so-called free market, and the division of the world into capitalist nation-states. The regular economic crises, imperialist wars, and growing horrors of climate change all bear witness to the fact that under capitalism, no further progress is possible for humanity. Only by overthrowing this defunct and dying system can we hope to liberate humanity from the nightmare offered by its continued existence. But this can only be achieved by the seizure of the gigantic productive forces created by the billions of propertyless workers who currently live under capitalism, and the planning of the global economy in a rational and democratic manner. In short, the further progress of humanity means nothing other than the end of class society itself and all its deadly trappings, not least 
the state. Friedrich Engels wrote in 1884, We are now rapidly approaching a stage in the development of production at which the existence of these classes has not only ceased to be a necessity, but becomes a positive hindrance to production. They will fall as inevitably as they once arose. The state inevitably falls with them. The society which organizes production anew on the basis of free and equal association of the producers will put the whole state machinery where it will then belong, into the Museum of Antiquities, next to the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. Today, that stage has long since arrived. The conditions for the overthrow of capitalism and establishment of socialism are not just present, they are rotten ripe. Now, we must fight to make Engels' prediction a reality and to build a future of freedom, fulfillment, and hope for the whole of humanity. That is all for this episode. Uh, if you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and follow as it helps us be heard by more people or consider making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or Socialist Fightback. Or, better yet, if you want to be part of overthrowing class society once and for all, why not join the IMT and fight for socialism in our lifetime? You can learn more about the IMT and how to get involved at marxist.ca. Stay safe, stay hopeful, stay curious. Until next time, Red Salute.